Hi, everyone. I'm joined today by Eugenie von Tutzelmann. She is an engineer and VFX supervisor at Framestore, focusing on theme park rides. Eugenie started out at Framestore working in the R&D department on a hippogriff for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. At DNEC, she started to work on fluid dynamics for films like Batman Begins, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, Iron Man 2 and Man of Steel, as well as co-developing a crowd system for John Carter. As CG supervisor on Interstellar, she worked with Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist Kip Thorne, simulating black holes and wormholes. Three years ago, she made a move away from film and into theme park rides. There's a thing where everybody says, well, I couldn't do anything else because this is all I know. But that's definitely, definitely not true. I mean, everybody in our industry has this whole range of skills, artistic, technical, problem-solving, teamwork, the creative process, collaborating with artists, collaborating with clients. They've got this huge range of skills that are applicable to loads and loads and loads of industries. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, tell everyone, go and quit your jobs tomorrow. But I do think that if you find yourself stagnating, I, I would really recommend trying something else. It, it was a huge sort of boost to my enthusiasm to do it. I'm your host Alexander Richter and you are listening to The 21 Artist Show, a podcast that inspires creatives to make meaningful content to pursue their passions. I'm talking to creators, artists and engineers about their careers, the lessons they have learned and how to make an impact. Enjoy the show. We start the show generally with a little bit like of the history of everyone who is invited in here. So it would be for, for us probably interesting to like understand like where's your background and how did you start in what visual effects at all? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I guess my story starts, uh, I don't know how long you want me to go back really. Um, my, my story, I guess, starts when I was a little kid and um, uh, I... It started out really with me wanting to build roller coasters when I was sort of seven, six or seven years old. And then um, and then I forgot about that. Um, and when uh, Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 came out, um, I was sort of just, uh, so I guess I was like 11, 12 years old. Um, and I thought, okay, I want to do that. So um, I decided I wanted to work in visual effects, but kind of at the time I was like, that's a great thing, but I, I wanted to work in some kind of creative aspect of engineering. I wanted to do tech uh, in a creative way. Um, and I think I, I didn't really know any of the names of any of those jobs at that point, but I remember when I, so I applied for engineering and I remember in my university interview talking about like, uh, visual effects um, and theme park rides, but I also talked about things like um, stage lighting and theatrical set building and, and, and visuals for concerts and all those kinds of things. And, um, and so I ended up, uh, so I studied engineering uh, and computing science. And then um, when I got to my master's, my fourth year, um, I, my supervisor was, he worked in, uh, it was a guy called Professor Andrew Zissiman. Um, He was working in the robotics group, but his his area of focus was um, visual geometry, as in building geometry from imagery. And in his case, it started out from sticking cameras on robots and um, having them sort of film their surroundings and allow them to build a 3D model of those surroundings and then negotiate their path around those surroundings. Um, 
And what had happened was that software had sort of, they'd realized that it had applications in the visual effects industry. And it, it became, I think, the first or one of the first pieces of automated match moving software, um, which they'd sold to visual effects companies. So um, kind of ended up applying to a few visual effects companies, including Framestore, which is where I went. Um, and instead of a, a showreel, I had my dissertation. I'd been working with him to, um, to, to extend the software to start tracking non-rigid objects. So um, it's tracking kind of skin um, and humans and things like that instead of just buildings and, and um, sort of rigid surfaces. And so that was, that was what I took in. And then I started a job in, in R&D. So um, I, was a, I was a junior programmer um, back in 2003. So that's how I got my first job. So basically you already started as a TD or was it like an R&D person? It was, I mean, so we've changed all the names of things since then because this is really long ago. Um, okay. my, my job title was junior programmer, but I think now we'd probably call it an ATD. Um, my, I was, I was at that point committed to just one project. So I was on, uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and my job was just to write lots of little bits of code, basically things that were, uh, either very show specific or kind of too small to go and bother the main pipeline and R and D departments with. So, um, and I loved it, honestly, I, I, it's a, it's a job that, um, I still kind of. I look on that role very fondly because I think that you can, when you're doing, you know, some of my, some of the jobs I was doing were quite cool, like um, helping with a feather design system for the hippogriff. And then some of them are like totally menial where it's like all of these files have been published with the wrong naming convention, publish them again. You know what I mean? But you can be an awful lot of help. Um, and I quite like, I mean, it appealed to my, to my brain that instead of having like one really long software project to do you kind of might have five different ones a week and and i i i personally i've, I've really really enjoyed it um and i think that you learn a lot from that kind of role because you kind of touch all the departments so one day you might be helping modeling and one day you might be helping the feather people and one day you're doing shader tools for lighting I, yeah i really loved it yeah i think this is also like the benefit if you start in a more technical environment you basically uh, like you're mostly not degraded to one skill because they're kind of like all over the place especially if you know like have like a problem solving sco a solution skill you have some scripting or programming background they kind of need you everywhere like compared to for example if you're an artist it's basically you're you like stick to a specific like direction and then in modeling for example and then you st stay in modeling because like that's what you're good at while in a technical sense i have always the feeling they kind of figure out while you go what like, what to give you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it uh, that that kind of role, like uh, programmer, ATD, TD type roles, technical general helper, are, are really good for not pigeonholing you. You know, they're really good for 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 letting you try everything out a bit. And I'd um, I'd actually kind of I wasn't sure when I went into visual effects. I wasn't really sure. I, what role I wanted to go into. Um, I think if, if you'd, if you'd asked, I might have said, uh, lighter or I might have said compositor. I kind of had the idea that like polishing a shot would be my thing, but, um, it was actually just kind of during doing that role that I saw what the effects department did. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So I ended up going into effects for like 
10 years after that or yeah it's funny because like uh, a lot of like tds end up in being in their role by surprise i mean for example i also uh, did media computer science and my first like my bachelor thesis job was basically in the it department which i totally hated like uh, literally like you're doing like websites and stuff like that and you're like wow this is like boring and just by chance like a td came over and it was like can you script and i was like yes and i was like do you know max script like no idea and he's like doesn't matter you're now uh, like a pipeline td and basically <laughs> from that on i was like pipeline td and i learned like very fast like i compared sometimes like now i i was wondering like how fast i learned like for example max script because he was just sitting down with me showing me a little bit the ropes and then pushing me like you know out out of the nest and it kind of worked i mean um you you didn't had the the pressure as for example he had that was for example maybe for me a little bit a thing where i like i never felt that anything i do besides one day um anything i do was kind of destroying something and i was like you know like if you do something wrong or if your script doesn't work basically people cannot wait i think that was one of the things that helped me a little bit to be free as as possible basically because compared to an artist you are the pipeline um and um, on the other side it's kind of like there were no pressure uh, involved not in a way that you that people like expected you to deliver daily things also because it was hard to measure how much you can deliver i think and yeah. i think this created like a lot of freedom in the beginning at least for me yeah i think so i think that um uh i think that 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 role like you you benefit a lot from having a good lead i mean maybe that's probably true of absolutely everything but like in 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 my in my role i had um i was i was hired by um a guy called alex parkinson who was um i think head of r&d at the time yes that's right head of r&d um and he he'd hired me and he basically like <laughs> he was pretty blunt and kind of said like i can do a certain amount of the programming jobs that come my way and then there's a certain number of them that i just can't fit into my day so you're going to be like my overspill person, <laughs> the things that I can't accommodate you'll take on. Um, and, and I mean, like we laughed about it, but think, I mean, really that's, that's just leadership, that's delegation and that kind of thing. But like, you know, he was, he was, he had a lot to do and there were lots of things that were, were fairly basic tasks, but they needed to get done. But I was super lucky with that because he knew how to do them sometimes. And he, and he had a lot of time for me and he was very good, but also like, I think, I think, um, if you can, the best way you can learn a, a, a programming language or a scripting language is, is to have half, it's like half written code. You know, it's like, I've got the framework in place, but it's unfinished. Can you, can you pick it up from here? That's actually a great way to learn because you, you read it, you get your head around the syntax and then it's just filling in the guts. Right. And it's, and, it, and debugging. Um, so I, same, same as you, I, I learned, lots of different things very, very fast, um, in, in that year. And I think, I think that, um, I, at the time I had like zero confidence, um, that I should be there and that I had any competence at all, you know, because you're like, I don't have a background in this, especially when, especially when, uh, all the people around you, because they're all artists, you know, as you said, they've been modeling for years and years. There are people in there been texture painting forever. There's people, all these different backgrounds, they're all talking about, uh, what they prefer out of XSI and, and Maya and Houdini and all these things. And, and you're like, I haven't opened any of these things. I don't know any of it. Um, and so, but like, 
you know, in that kind of scripting role, you can still be like really, frankly, really useful, you know, because because there's just a lot of those things you're doing to make people's lives easier. Yeah, I think also I appreciate this diversity. I think that was one of the reasons later I understood that I kind of enjoy the job because in a way you get this much freedom in to be to be to be like like uh, quite frank like most people don't know what the fuck you're doing <laughs> um, and they're kind of also like you know like they 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 let you work it's kind of like how long like you want to work on that okay so there's like a lot like especially with experience you kind of can uh, shift the boat a little bit more and i think this is what i what i enjoy um about the technical part more than the artist part because i switched between both and i saw you switching also between between both um yeah. parts artistic parts or uh, and technical parts and i noticed like how much limitation you have when you do artistic stuff like you're very client based or you know someone basically kind of decides for you how to do things and this is sometimes hard yeah a little bit i mean i think that i think that that's massively dependent on the specific project and client that you're working with you know because um sometimes you get there's pros and cons to both like in terms of uh artistic sort of control um you get some clients who have an extremely clear vision and they know exactly what they want and in a way that can be great because you know exactly what you're aiming to hit. You know that when you do hit it, they'll like it. It's a very sort of clear path. But then on the flip side, if you get a client that comes in and is like, I don't know, I want something like dark and scary, you know, and they, they don't have anything more than that. One of the great pleasures of the job is designing cool stuff, right? So then then that can be a, a tremendous pleasure as well. So But they're, but they're pros and cons. And certainly, um, if you're going to have the completely free brief, hopefully you also have a time and schedule that allow for that. <laughs> it's it's interesting for me, like, how did that happen, like, from you starting, like, in an R&D department at Framestore, uh, like, completely as new to the industry, completely a little bit like a newbie in, in this whole situation, um, making black holes in Interstellar. Like, <laughs> of course, I, I know that is probably Many not a switch of a, of a day. Exactly. It's like not a switch of a day, but but even like like imagining like how, um, because even I knew that, like I, I, I didn't know your name before um, when I when I heard that, but it, it became kind of, a, kind of a, like legend or famous at least the whole black black hole uh, thing of interstellar because um like you see making offs and you see like how much effort it took and also how like precise and like thing like breaking grounds and it was really interesting so i knew your work before i knew you which is always a good thing i would say and and for me it's like interesting how like how it came to be that first thing you you come to this project and how it came to be that you uh like stepped it up so high on a level that normally visual effects don't do okay um well i mean the i'm happy to talk about interstellar the first the first thing i'm going to say though is that it wasn't my work it was our work like that is a huge 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 team of people i was a very small part of it you know and um i uh in a way, like I, I, one of the sort of things about uh, job titles and, and, you know, those kinds of things is that you get a lot of credit for work that you're like, 
I was sort of involved. Oh, <laughs> it wasn't like it was my black hole. Um, so, but I can, but I can talk about how I got involved in it. Um, because, so, I mean, after, after my sort of newbie R and D role, um, I moved into effects, um, and I did that for many years, um, mostly concentrating on fluid dynamics and then, uh, did some crowd simulation stuff and, uh, went into an effects supervisor role on Man of Steel. And then, um, after that, I was, I was keen to, I was keen to kind of try out some of the other facets of the industry apart from effects. Um, and then by sort of happy, happy circumstance, um, Interstellar was in that super, super, super early pre-production stage. It hadn't been cast yet. Um, and there were conversations going on between um, Chris Nolan and Paul Franklin, who was the overall visual effects supervisor, where they were starting to talk about just what the film was going to be and it's still script still being written. Um, and at that point, um, uh, I was I was freeing up from Man of Steel. And um, so uh, Paul and my my boss, my head of head of CG at the time, um, Gav Graham, kind of approached me and said, um, we want to do some concepts, sort of 3D concepts about um, the, a sort of physics based. So they have some kind of space time sort of swapping physical and temporal dimensions, sort of crazy, crazy ideas of sort of psychedelic ideas of, of uh, physics ideas in, in CG. And actually, it was all about the, the inside of the black hole at the end of the film at that point. Um, and so I came on to do that. Um, and I was working on that for a few months. And then like over that time, um, effectively, they asked if I wanted to be CG supervisor on it, which was awesome. Um, and I was very excited. I wasn't the only one. I worked with a guy called Dan Neal, who was fantastic. Um, so we together uh, kind of worked on the film for then another year or so. Um, and then uh, when, so at that point, sort of a few months in, um, we started talking about the exterior of the black hole um, and Kip Thorne had obviously been a part of this film. He, he'd written the original treatment for the film before Chris Nolan was involved and it was kind of his idea, the film. Um, and so we got on a call with him and at the time it was, it was me, Paul Franklin and then Oliver James, who was our chief scientist and kind of the, the real sort of overseer of the black hole project. Um, and then we were on the phone with Kip Thorne and we started talking about like, what would it, what would it take to do this um, scientifically accurately? Um, and I've got to be honest, like at the time, I didn't really think that we would, like I thought that what would happen is that we would write some code that did it scientifically accurately and we'd look at it and we'd get a picture out and the picture would be cool and inspirational. You know, it would have some kind of shape to it and a look. We would look at it and we would use it as reference and then we'd probably go and do something in Nuke that sort of was inspired by it, but more artistically designed. And that's kind of how I thought it would pan out. And I think everyone at that time kind of thought that's probably fine. And, you know, um, but I think the reason we ended up going so massively into doing it properly, scientifically accurately, was that um, was really Oliver James. Um, and, you know, I guess we were all on board with it, right? We were, we were all science nerds who wanted to do it. But like Oliver had uh, had a, you know, 
a background in optics and physics. And he was sort of, he was writing a lot of the code himself and looking after a team to, to, to work on it too. Um, and he was just effectively, you know, getting really into it. So, uh, so he was, he was writing this, this, this code and then, and it would turn into like, could we get texture map support in there? And then we stop and then we're like, that's looking really cool. Could we get support for distant stars in there? And it's like, that's working really well. And then as, as it sort of, there, there came a sort of tipping point where it was like, maybe we can generate all our final images with this, um, which is quite scary. Cause then you're like, we're right. We're writing a, a renderer for this. Right. But like, um, but it, you know, I, it's also, there's a point at which you want to do it because it's like, this is, this is really, this is really doing something quite exciting. You know, it's quite, it, it's quite new for a film to be doing something like this. So, so that's, that's how it came about. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was, I mean, obviously really, I, I can't put into words how, how kind of honored and excited I was to do it. I think it, it, it's a, it is, it's a very memorable part of my career. <laughs> How much was the discussion of faking it? Like, how much was there, uh, like, the like the thing where you said, like, do we keep it going or should we just kind of uh, comp it together or something oh, like that? We talked about it. I mean, that's kind of what we did for the wormhole. Um, so the the wormhole at the beginning of the movie uh, is a mix of um, of the wormhole renderer, the scientific accurate one, and then some completely creatively designed um, nuke work for the when when you're traveling through it. Um, and you know the the discussion was always that we'll follow scientific accuracy if it looks great and supports the story. but if it doesn't, we won't. And that was always the the aim like it was never we were never slaves to it. It was always seen as like let's start with what's real. And if it's, you know, and everyone has to agree, like, I mean, the, the decision is Christopher Nolan's, but, you know, if you're looking at it and going, it doesn't look very good, then then we're not going to use that. So the, the the situation with the wormhole was that um, it's, it's kind of hard to describe, but um, so the wormhole looks like a sphere and the sphere is the sort of 360 map of the other galaxy that you're going into. And as you approach it, you know, it gets bigger and bigger. Uh, through your perspective camera. Um, and what actually happens is that it just gets bigger and bigger until it fills your field of view and now you're through it. That's that's how it would look. And the and so we, we created those renders. But the thing is that because of the way it distorts as it grows, what it looks exactly like is that you're just zooming in. So it just looks like you go, you you zoom in and then it's done and you're and you're through the wormhole. And the problem with that was it just wasn't very dramatic that like you, you had this, you had the actors who like the whole ship was shaking and they're like, oh my God. And it's supposed to be this amazing moment of like, you've gone through and you're in this new galaxy. But what it looked like was you zoomed in and then everyone goes, oh, we've arrived. But it's like nothing, nothing happened. You know, it's just visually not very like it's cool, but it's not, there's no moment of travel in there, you know, visually. Um, so from a storytelling point that just didn't work. So we, we used the correct renders for the outside of the wormhole. And then when we went through, we did a, a completely crazy design thing where we mapped like the renders of it onto pieces of geometry that we were passing over and things like that so that we had, you know, a feeling of travel. And that's completely a whole load of like 
reprojection in nuke and and you know things like that but it it was the right decision because it served the story and and you know we were actually all all on board with that like i don't think there was anyone going no it has to be accurate like um but with the with the black hole on the other hand it looked amazing from the moment we started creating renders of it so uh we we kind of gave up on the idea of designing something in nuke and just went we're going to do this you know and i think this is also the the point i, I want, want to go is like um, we basically were working on this uh, theme park right yeah um and pearl quest that's right yeah pearl quest. and um <laughs> i always wanted to say roller coaster and you say no yeah i kept telling you off for it it wasn't a roller coaster don't don't, don't, don't call it roller coaster it's like oh um so I, I was wondering like because um you you had this this uh like like this career going into like full feature movies, uh, more CG, like really big cinematic uh, like milestones. And then you make this this shift, basically. You you shifted, like you're still at Framestore. I mean, you were in between at DNEC, but you came back to Framestore. And now you, you, you're going to, um, to do theme park rides and... I think VR also is also part of of the whole, or at least at least in, yeah. the, in the production is a part of the process. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, like, because you you already mentioned that you were in, in your childhood, you were kind of interested in that. Like, what was the the pinnacle point for you to say, like, okay, I want to make a turn in yeah. my career? It was a few things. Um, one thing, actually, was was Interstellar, which. Um, wasn't the last film I worked on, but nonetheless, it was, you know, obviously a big career highlight in terms of how interesting the work was and how unusual it was. Um, and there was, there was part of me that kind of thought, you know, it, it sounds really negative, but like, is it ever going to be that interesting again? Like, am I going to go back to normal films and be like, oh, but, but, but that's a, that's quite a negative way of looking at it. But actually it, it was a much more positive feeling than that. It, I, I would describe it more as like um, I had this insight into working in astrophysics because of because of doing that, and you know we we wrote some papers at the end of of the project that astrophysics papers that were published, and it it I it gave me this little insight into, and I, you know I did little talks at sort of physics events and things, and it gave me this insight into like I'm I'm super lucky that that my background is is you know, STEM-based science and engineering maths. And um, I, I, there's huge numbers of applications of, of that kind of skill set. Um, and I'd been working in film at that point for sort of 14, 13, 14 years, something like that. Um, and, and I started thinking like, should I have a look at some of the other things that I can do with these, with these skills? Um, and it wasn't a feeling of like, I've got to leave film, but it was like, there's a great big world out there. And it wasn't that I was frustrated. It wasn't that I was a frustrated astrophysicist. I wasn't thinking like, I want to go and be a scientist. <laughs> it, was, it was just that, it was just that I kind of felt like, uh, I, I want to vary it up a bit. I want to try some other things that I could do. Um, and simultaneously and sort of just sort of coincidentally, um, I, I happened to do a, a holiday to Orlando and I, and I went, you know, I'd been there when I was, six years old, but I hadn't been there in a very, very, very long time. Um, and I went on sort of this new breed of theme park rides where, um, you know, some of them now are very media heavy. Some of them have media to lesser extents, but lots of them were these, you know, extraordinary um, 
combinations of like physical engineering, media, both audio and visual, um, you know, music, pyrotechnics, physical sets, kind of beautiful pieces of design and and working like this amazing technological ballet, you know, that that all kind of works together. And I thought they were really extraordinary. And, and I kind of had that, you know, rekindling of that when I was a kid and wanted to build roller coasters. I was like, yeah, you know, they've almost like the way that rides had gone, they brought together these sort of twin passions of roller coasters and visual effects to, to, you know, and so I just had that thing of like, this, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to, I want to have a go at this. Um, so, so, um, when I, I mean, I did do, uh, a couple more films after Interstellar, but when I heard that, um, Framestore were setting up a, a sort of specific rides, um, division, uh, you know, sort of dedicated rides team, um, I thought I should, go and do some of that. So, so I left Dineg. Dineg were, um, was a tremendously good place to work. And I was really, I was really sad to leave actually. Um, but nonetheless, it, I, I thought it was, it was time for that change. Yeah. And in a way you completed the circle at, at this moment, basically you started at Framestore and you had like a long <laughs> career at Dineg and came right. back to Framestore. Yeah. So, um, I, I would be also like interesting, like, um, since this is so, untouched territory at least uh like i i even i was kind of like i wasn't sure what will what will i will do during that time so uh like after like this this big project you did like how would you describe of like how do you do you create a theme park right especially if maybe also in your position like or what's your job now exactly in terms of theme park rides yeah sure i mean it's um it's a really It's a really exciting and tricky question to answer um, because the, the truth is that every project I've been involved with um, in, in rides and attractions has been different um, in terms of what we've uh, been responsible for um, at, at Framestore, but also what my involvement in it has been. Um, so kind of the, the, my, my job title says, Uh, visual effects supervisor, um, and so the 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 simplest way to answer the question would be to say, if the ride has like big screens or something showing visual effects imagery, I'm visual effects supervisor of that imagery, and that's the easiest way to answer it. But the truth is, it's um, because because I've come from the engineering background, I tend to be much more biased towards the physical and technological parts of the of the project. So. We have, um, you know, in-house creative directors and directors who'll be more focused on the creative and artistic side of it. Um, but my focus is more on making sure that everything works. Um, so uh, if you have, for example, um, there are some rides that are generally called dark rides where you have, um, like Pearl Quest, you have a vehicle that's on a track and it's going through physical scenes, but it's also passing big screens, which are Uh, supposed to look like sort of extensions of the ride environment around you. So they need to, they need to work with, uh, they need to have the right kind of perspective warping on the imagery, but they also, you, we as a visual effects company need to have a kind of strong relationship with those people programming the ride vehicle. And we have to be making sure that we're bringing in that data and converting it into cameras that we can render from. So like, that's where I, I look at that side of it. But then sometimes you have a completely different situation where um, instead of the ride vehicle programming driving the cameras, 
it's the opposite and you've got a simulator ride. So you have the CG camera movies driving the ride vehicle. So then I'll be responsible for kind of turning that data into something that we can use to, to, um, to control the ride vehicle, if that's how that project is structured, you know? Um, so, so each, each project different, but effectively it's kind of that, um, handling all of the data that needs to be shared between, um, visual effects and, uh, and media in general. Um, and all of the physical aspects of building a ride um, and making it work. <laughs> I think I can also uh, like like hear like a little bit of the startup and guerrilla mentality in this whole um, like aspect of um, theme park rides. At least it sounds a little bit like it's it's un like unexplored territory in the new wave you know of course like roller coasters for example are older but theme park rides especially with either vr or projection or something like that is i think still a more new medium which is also fed by the like marvel and all the the big companies that can combine this like exploration because for example if um i i heard like the the joke from um um, from Johnny Depp when when he was uh, pretending to be Jack Sparrow in the theme park right in in Disney it's still mechatronics you know um, so I think this is like still if you compare like well, how Disney generally does their rides is still a lot of mechatronics a lot of puppets and stuff like that so I think this aspect is um, is a little bit new it's it's definitely true to say that it's a little bit undefined I mean that said you know there's 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 some extraordinarily good rides out there which have been done and planned in very good ways by their teams so it's not like it's all just crazy and everyone's just trying stuff <laughs> but at the same time there there is this desire to change and improve how we use media um including as you've touched on interaction in real time um which we've done a little bit of um in the rides team at frame store and i think that uh this stuff is being shaped as we go, it's not a defined pipeline yet. It's not a, it, you know, with, with film work, um, not that there aren't sort of improvements being made to efficiency and stuff, but there's quite a, a strict sort of workflow now where you know that you go uh, on the shoot and you know that you take your HDRs and you know that you LIDAR scan and you know that, you know, these are the steps um, and, and you have your Macbeth charts and there's a very sort of clear way that that data is ingested and that people use it. And, you know, and it's lovely if you get that all very slick and running very well, and then people can concentrate on the art and making things look nice. But in, in rides right now in attractions, we don't really, I mean, we, when we do shoots, we still do that stuff, but like we, we don't have such a defined method. There's still sort of right. Who's going to lead the way. Are we going to program the vehicle first? and drive the previous from that? Or are we going to go the other way and start with, you know, previousing the story and then work out what the vehicle should do? I mean, that's a sort of slightly uh, oversimplistic uh, impression of it. But nonetheless, it, it is being, you know, shaped and defined as we go. And that makes it fun um, from a problem-solving standpoint, especially um, in, in, you know, my role as, as, a, as a technical person. But I think that, you know, it's, it's exciting times for all the artist people as well because because you're 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 defining you're designing not just a uh an object on a like something on a rectangular screen you're designing a whole experience so you're designing what you know what people walk through and what's seen where and 
that's that's really cool too so yeah so that's why i like it i think that's that's also that the aspect of exploration which you basically kind of had in in interstellar it's kind of like you 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 define your goals a little bit and see like like grab a little bit from from your past experience like from a like a visual supervisor sometimes you have like okay now i have to understand this mechatronic stuff which maybe i never did so i think this is the the explanation part is also what what drives you here it's, that sounds like a little bit yeah yeah definitely um i remember seeing a really really inspiring talk at siggraph a few years back which um i is probably actually also part of my decision to uh, to make the move into the, attractions. The Seagraph um, talks are very influential for a lot yeah, of people. <laughs> yeah, it was just, um, uh, and, and then a couple of weeks ago, I actually for the first time saw it physically, what, what, they, what they were giving me to talk about, which is um, that they have a, they have what is effectively a, a meet and greet with Belle from Beauty and the Beast. So all the kids go and they meet Belle, but behind her, they have an animatronic of Lumiere and it's so ridiculously good. You know, uh, Lumiere moves exactly as he does in the movie. Um, he's a perfect little animatronic. He's very fluid, very expressive. And it's a combination of a, an animatronic that they've animated in Maya, um, but then also a face that's projected, a CG face that's projected from the inside. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a perfect illusion. And that comes from people doing the kinds of things I'm doing, which is, you know, blurring of the digital and the media and the physicality, robotics, um, and that sort of thing, and working out how that illusion should work. And that's the stuff that gets me really excited, you know? Yeah, I think it's also like a very um, brave uh, thing to do, because it's always easier just to sit down and like do what you know, what you get paid for, what you're good at, what people like appreciate of you doing. But a lot of times, and I think it's also like you mentioned that uh, things get boring, like in a way of, it's not about that, that it, it's generally boring. It's, 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 it's uh, more like it's getting boring because after a while you, you've done it. Um, the, the, the steps are very clear. A shooting is very clear, a typical, animation film or visual effects film um, if it doesn't have like a black hole every project or um, like a, a new first system or a new lighting system or da, 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 um, it basically what for example one of the things what for example Pixar is very very famous for like having every project like a new challenge which close yeah. to break the project you know um and i think that's also one of the of their successes by by keeping um besides uh like improving in the visual and people like watching it and seeing like oh wow this is uh, i never saw this before it also i think keeps the artist and technician like on their toes and keeps them involved and keeps them pushing because they know like, okay, the next project, we will do something crazy again. So I will be challenged again. And I think this is one of the things I, I'm, I wanted to, why I wanted to talk to you, because I think it's really important to reflect, um, of what you do and not just, just drive the course. Um, and then like after, after years or decades, even you're kind of like, oof, like, I'm doing the same thing. I'm good at it, but I'm doing the same thing every day. And I miss maybe the kid part in myself yeah. that kind of like 
like enjoys that because in a way like you know working on on movies is a great thing like you know you work on oh, stuff awesome. that that you work that you watch that you enjoy and for me even um because some some people have say that they they kind of spoiled by working on on movies and now kind of have this critical eye i don't really think that's true in itself because i yes if if the cg is bad that it uh falls down a threshold i kind of notice it but as long as the story involves me i don't really care how it looks or i like i will not sit there and say like oh the lighting or the shading is not correct so i think that was one of the biggest reasons i i, I love to, to talk to you is kind of like um listening to yourself and and making the move if you feel like um it's it's the right thing to do. You know, I, I don't want to imply that I was bored in working in film because I wasn't. Every every film was its own challenge. There was always a new thing to, to create or learn or, you know, so I, I wasn't bored, but I was, I, I did start to feel like I was doing less sort of of my own problem solving. And part of that is because of exactly what we've touched upon, which is that you, you've refined your workflow really well and now everybody's up and running and doing well and they're hitting different problems and there's always things and you always need your team of ATDs and all of that kind of thing. But I'm kind of watching the team going, you're doing a great job, guys. <laughs> Keep going. Um, and like, it, it's not, um, I don't, I don't in any way want to imply that because I, I feel like, you know, I had a really good career at, at Egg and it was, and it was great. And they, they were very kind of conscious of, of keeping me doing interesting stuff and all of that. But I certainly, you know, I think that as soon as you've become a bit passive in terms of what you're learning, um, and you know, your, your experience, then you do lose that kid part of, of your, you know, of your brain and you learn the, and, and you, I think that, like I never want to become jaded. I always want to feel excited to go into my job every day. And so I actually felt as soon as I'd made the move, um, I kind of became a bit of an evangelist for telling people to think about changing careers every 10 years or so, because I think that um, what you what you said was it's much easier to sort of keep doing what you're good at. And I think that's true. I think that for a lot of people, there's a great importance in safety. And I don't want to be disrespectful to that because I think that for a lot of people, that is right for them. But I think it, I, it wasn't, for me, I needed that change. And I think that there's a um, there's a thing where everybody says, well, I couldn't do anything else because this is all I know. But that's definitely, definitely not true. I mean, everybody in our industry has this whole range of skills, artistic, technical, problem-solving, teamwork, the creative process, collaborating with artists, collaborating with clients. They've got this huge range of skills that are applicable to loads and loads and loads of industries. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, tell everyone, go and quit your jobs tomorrow. But I do think that if you find yourself stagnating, I, I would really recommend trying something else. It, it was a huge sort of boost to my enthusiasm to do it. 
I absolutely see, see it the same way for me. I, I'm I'm kind of maybe I'm an evangelist for for uh, like burning and next after one <laughs> because, because it's like uh, I don't know uh, like maybe it's it's mentally probably not even physically but I I feel like I'm mentally like every few years I shift my focus so if like for example I started to become a lawyer then I became I never yeah, knew that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> secrets <laughs> um so i was studying law for three years and um until the point where i kind of burned out during studies uh, i didn't notice it like mentally i just like had headaches like crazy and then as i was kind of like okay what what do i study I, like i have to find something else and then i was looking at media computer science i was like i like media I don't like the computer science part. <laughs> um, so I, I ended up still applying and um, kind of shifted then um, from like didn't want to work on apps and web. So I kind of shifted then to, to film and from the artistic part to the technical director part and then on, on being a lecturer on, on YouTube. A lot of that I kind of enjoyed for the moment. But after a while, it was, it was like a like like energy draining. You know, uh, it felt like, for example, when I started YouTube, it was kind of like I started that. I, I made some videos like scripting for artists, which was called because I wanted to create videos which I was searching in the beginning. You know, I wanted to create videos who, so, where someone can explain it in language I talk. So I made these videos, and then I tried to make it like more professional, if you want so. And it stressed me out like hell. Like I literally felt like, like after like the first five videos, I was kind of like <sighs> the next video. I like, and I felt like I had to do it. You know, I felt like, uh, and I think in, in, in a lot of jobs, this can happen very fast where you feel like very fast, even if you enjoy the general aspect of it, you know, like, mm. I, I, I mean, I'm doing this and I love that. Yeah. Like, um, but exactly because I framed it differently, I don't create pressure for myself. Um, mostly, my like the people talks oh. pressure off me. Nice. Um, I'm just uh, I'm just hosting it. <laughs> so, but but it creates like like, and I love the interviews. I love to talk about growth. I love to talk uh, about this, the stories of someone else, and learn from it, and maybe solve problems. Because, for example, if you inspire also to say like nothing is set in stone per se and even if you if you set like years into development of it i mean it somewhat depends on the type of work and the team that you're working with but i think in many ways i got better at my job for changing jobs because i brought skills from a different background to this because like you know the people that i'm working with in in the i mean we have a obviously we have we're at frame store we have lots and lots of amazing visual effects artists of different types um in the in the sort of those who are sort of dedicated to rise and attractions that small team there's some people who whose background is sort of uh big sort of car show installations of huge screens you've got people who have backgrounds in immersive theater you've got people who have backgrounds in 2d animation people who have backgrounds in in film and then people in, who have backgrounds in advertising and they they all bring uh something you know uh even you know architecture and you they all bring something that that 
you know, each other doesn't know. And so in many ways, the reason the team is good is because they have changed jobs. <laughs> you know, um, if we all stuck with what the same thing, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to amass skills in that way. Yeah, it, remi it reminds me a little bit of this uh, anecdote where, where like um, one of the recruiter comes to, to the CEO and says like, um, what if we train our people and they go? And then the CEO replies like, what if, if we don't train up on our people and they stay? Yeah. <laughs> so, and in a way, like I heard this mantra from, from some companies basically saying um, like, we, we rather train them treat them well, and then they go away, they, they learn everywhere, and then they come back. And they bring the knowledge back to that. I mean, in a way, like Framestore did a good job on that because... Right, because I came back. <laughs> I'm a very strong believer in looking kind of the long game and more holistically at that kind of thing. And I think, you know, if, if you have somebody in your team and they're brilliant and they're itching to go somewhere else, you know heartbreaking as it can be you have to just let them because you don't want them sitting in the job and resenting it and if you've treated them well and you've been nice there's a huge amount of possibility your paths are going to cross again you know um uh, whether it's at that same company or a different one years down the line but the the uh the aim should be like do train people support their careers <laughs> like Try, try to be enabling as much as you can because you you know that's that's our our careers are all based on these long you know long relationships that cycle back um with companies and with each other um but then i i don't know that there's any uh, i think we all tell ourselves that i don't think there's anyone going no treat them like shit um but <laughs> but like but it's it's just it's just worth remembering that like in the fullness of time, these these things sort of often end up coming back and changing. So, I, I think uh, Carl Rosendale said something really great about this point, which you just basically mentioned. Um, he talked about it was kind of the the talk we were talking about vision and company culture, and 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 there is like uh, what he said basically what what you basically said. He said um, like a vision should be like there should be. If you, if you pick a vision, the contrast should be also like realistic. So for example, if you say like, um, we, the, our vision is to create a great product, like there is no opposite side of that. How can <laughs> you like, like what would be like a shitty product? Yeah, like, we're on a, it's really crap. We're aiming for really crap. Exactly. So basically like this is exactly the example where, where it doesn't work that to do the split because um, you basically describe one side which everyone knows. Everyone wants to be happy. Like, you know, like who 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 will say like I want to be miserable all day? This is sure. This sure, is the split that doesn't work, for example. I suppose it is something to remind yourself, you know, we will always have those those battles in terms of people who people who want to leave where uh potentially you're trying to talk them out of it or move them around the company or that sort of thing. And also whether to, you know, how much to invest in training and those kinds of things that they're, that those decisions are often quite difficult decisions to make managerially. Um, but it is good to remind yourself that like it, it, you know, <laughs> you, you've got to be a good employer. You've got to support people. That's, that's your, that's what you've got to do. That's your job. Um, it, it doesn't, do any good to to treat 
people any less than that. Yeah, and I think also it creates exactly um, like your experience a little bit. Like if you feel appreciated, you you try to strive to your goals. You try to find exactly what you're good at and not try just to please the job or your title or the people around you. You try to find like because you feel, you feel trusted. And I think one of the reasons... Um, you you did the move also and that's how it sounded like is because you feel in a lot of way trusted and surrounded by people who will appreciate whatever move you do it was i found it super sad as i said leaving dina because i i had so many friends there and i felt so um appreciated there but um they also i think understood why i did it that uh they knew what my sort of what my passions were they knew that I had theme park rides tattooed all down my arm um and and so it, I didn't know that <laughs> do you not yeah no. um, I, I obviously this is a podcast but there is a camera version so so there it is for anyone who's following along on YouTube um you can see on YouTube exactly <laughs> yeah um uh but but yeah I mean they you know it it was I don't think anyone was surprised that that's a move I wanted to make so um, so yeah, and you know, like I say, your paths will cross with a lot of these people again. Would you describe yourself, uh, someone who is like, like uh, as a pushing person or you're more like waiting and see, because this, I think it's also important to understand like when you do the move, because a lot of people have, uh, like, if they listen to this kind of stuff for them, it's like unrealistic. It's like, I'm not this person. I cannot just change my career um, like because I don't feel like I'm like like you or me or whoever um, because I feel more a passive way I feel more secure way but I also feel I need to do the move so like how would you describe yourself like basically um, as a person in terms of like are you more the pu pushing person or more the passive one in uh, I'm super pushy <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think once I've got an idea into my head I I I don't release it easily. So, you know, when I when I'd started thinking like this is this is something that I want to work in. Um I mean it did take me, you know, a little while to to find the right job in it, but I I I kind of I was like, well that's that's kind of what I want to do now. Um <laughs> and and so uh I don't want to oversimplify and go so I made it happen. The end. you know it's not it, it's not like that, that. Would and, be it, cool, and it, you know? and it <laughs> might and it might not have done and it might have been a situation where before the opportunity came up I was offered an amazing job on a film and thought actually I really want to do that and then you know a different thing might have panned out but um but no I do get uh I guess a little bit obsessive about things like that like planning things and trying to make them happen so um so I pushed for it I think I do think that um I do think that there's a, a a funny thing where I guess it's the kind of fear of failure, but there's a funny thing where people don't want to say out loud, this is what I want to do because they're a bit worried that it won't then happen and they'll have failed at it, you know? And so they, they don't say it either to themselves or to their employers, like this is the, this is the role I want to have. This is the thing I want to work on. Um, and, uh, and, It doesn't come to me that naturally either. I don't really like saying to people, like, I want to do this. But I, uh, but whenever I've done it, it's been the right decision. 
that actually communicating to yourself and others what it is that you want to do with your future sometimes results in getting you know opportunities to do it and sometimes it just results in you kind of redoubling your efforts to make it happen yeah i think that's one of the points i, I wanted to to stretch out here because um i don't know why it's this way but we always think for everyone is much easier you know it's like we we always think like we have it harder like we our situation is more complicated um how someone just decided and then like next day he was doing <laughs> it like yeah. uh, creating a company um starting youtube uh doing theme palm rides um whatever and i think that that's one of the the, the things like like uh, how like how did you prepare yourself for that like what what was like because like first thing was that uh, like already the decision when you decided like the first time when you was thinking about it was like i want to do in this direction theme park rides and the second one is how did you prepare then when you decided that yeah well i mean i first of all i don't think i've had it it's been much easier for everybody else. I think I'm super privileged and I've had loads of advantages in life. Um, so, so I was just going to say that. I think it's good to remember yeah, the privilege. It's, it's not just luck. It's not just hard work. It's also privilege. Um, I, uh, I think that, well, so, so I guess the things that I did, um, I didn't, it wasn't like I woke up one day and went, that's it. I'm going to go and work <laughs> in theme park rides. It's more like, I, I'd had those sort of multiple things happen where I'd been to Orlando. I'd seen some of the latest, the latest and greatest things that, that people had built. I thought it was really interesting. I knew that I wanted to do something a bit more physical and that I wanted to, to alter my job in some way. It all kind of felt like that's probably the direction I want to go in. It wasn't the only thing I was thinking about. I was also thinking about VR and some of the other things that we've, that I talked about at the beginning of this interview. So things like, um, uh, theatrical, um, you know, stages and, 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 uh, sort of stage tech, um, things like that. They're kind of all things that I was like, maybe I, you know, maybe I'll look into some of these things and, and even back into robotics, which is where I'd been doing my research back at university. And, and, um, and they were all things that are sort of hovering around as like potential ideas. I guess the way that I prepared myself was just, um, I started, I just started kind of reading more and talking to people more um and what i mean by that is I, i it wasn't like i went around cold calling companies and going can i have a job it wasn't like that it was just more that like if i happened to meet someone and they said oh my friend works in stage tech i'd be like oh can we maybe go for a pint sometime all of us and i can talk to them a bit about what they do and i was just i was just kind of learning it wasn't that they were all sort of people that i was applying to it was more just like it's interesting to hear what other people do and and does that start to shape your ideas and kind of um give you more more ideas for where you might like to go and a lot of them just sort of didn't interest me that much but then the 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 theme park thing was hovering around as like a passion that i had um and then as i said sort of by luck really um frame store suddenly said like we're going to sort of commit ourselves to doing this and putting a team together for it and and that was i mean i would say it probably took you know, something along the lines of 18 months, two years between me thinking, maybe I want to change my job to that actually happening. But when it did happen, um, it, it felt like, right, that's the opportunity I've been waiting for. Basically, that's also in a way my experience. I'm not quite there yet. Like you are, I don't, I, I'm still kind of like 
putting my hands out and try to find out exactly, you know, the like the, the small door I'm searching. You know, I'm I'm kind of doing what I like and kind of still calibrating myself. So it's basically like you described. It's kind of you 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 instinctively you know what you want. It, it it's there's there's this very very funny example like funny um, where you where you have to imagine if someone puts a gun to your head and says, "What do you want?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're really really honest. Like don't even like try to block yourself or something like that. Like, just poof. You know it. If if you uh, want to kind of like um, resign from a job, you know it. You, if you want to end a relationship, friendship, whatever, or start one, uh, you know it. I think this is like um, the impulse we kind of lost a little bit of listening to us um, and things like meditation and stuff and stuff like that, or like even talks like this. I think sometimes help people to refresh this like inner instinct of. Uh, listen to yourself because you know what you want, but you you filled up with a lot of shit through years, so you lost the feeling of um, what inspires you. And the funny thing is, a lot of things are very similar. Like it's not that um, you like basically, for example, there's not crazy much difference between what you did before and now. No, but no. but in a way, it's it's makes for you a, a, a big difference. I think it's been a huge change to my lifestyle because I travel vastly, vastly more now, and and I spend more time on a building site with a hard hat on. But I am fundamentally still doing CG, um, and so and actually, in many ways, when I started thinking maybe I want to change, I sort of expected I would make a bigger jump than the one that I did. I mean, bear in mind, I went back to a company that I'd already worked at. <laughs> Um, so it was hardly, it was hardly this completely life-changing, you know, thing, but it, nonetheless, it was, it was, a, a there is a sort of significant, there are significant differences to, to, to what the work is like. And there's, um, there's also, I mean, I will say, you know, having said, I spent 18 months, two years working out what the right move was, I was still massively considering not moving, um, I was always torn. It wasn't like I was waiting for the opportunity and then I was immediately going to bite and jump out. I I also really loved what I was doing and I loved the people I was working with. So I, I was, it's just, I suppose the thing is that it, it's exactly what we talked about, that, that if you sense that you are personally stagnating um, or that you're losing your your mojo frankly you're, you're getting less excited in the morning to do what you do then then it's probably best to change things but I you know that's tricky as well when you've got people that you love working with and you know a job a job that you love but I, I like I say I think I got better at my job for having done it so I I, I also I quite like the idea that you know when people talk about pursuing your dreams uh, or they say like you know follow your dream I think, well, follow your dreams, follow your dreams, plural. Like there's probably loads of things you're interested in. Most of us are interested in loads of things. Like you don't have to only work in one of them. I think there was a Austin Powers reference in that. <laughs> the mojo. <laughs> the mojo. <laughs> I had also the feeling. Like what would what, be interesting for me, because I think... Um, we we talked before like about imposter syndrome and stuff like that. What, what, but what, what I'm, I'm interested here is like, um, like how... 
through your career, like till now, how was your like, self-esteem changing? And like also like through the whole stuff from starting um, to like being at the pinnacle of what you experienced, for example, like Instella, for example, was one of the things projects. And now, like how did your like self-esteem change? Because even I like I know that some people, even on their highest position, they sometimes feel like not so self-secure as if they like for example would surf, serve coffee somewhere you know like um, so or or do some like do the same ceo job but in a complete different environment where they feel more so i would would be interesting for me like how how did your like self-esteem change through that and how did you experience that a little bit uh, it's really interesting um i haven't i haven't been asked that before and i guess i guess it's kind of i guess it's kind of personal but it's also um yeah, it comes and it goes in waves, I think, because very much when I was a newbie, when I was completely new to the industry, I was in a constant, constant state of panic that I was going to lose my job um, and that I was not because I just wasn't succeeding well enough at it. I didn't know the languages. I didn't know the workflow. I didn't know enough to be as useful as they probably wanted me to be. Um, and the funny thing was I did lose my job. <laughs> um, still made me redundant. Um, and, uh, and it was kind of fine. Like, uh, you know, I, it's not always fine for everyone. Like losing your job can be detrimental to people, but for me, I got another job and the world kept turning. And in a way that was a, a really big boost to me because it made me realize that like your fears of failure you know fundamentally the everything life goes on <laughs> it's not that bad you know um so so that was and then I would say that I for a while I went through a kind of growth of my self-esteem where I was starting the effects work and I felt that I was good at it and and it's nice when you kind of you know and you get good feedback from your from your co-workers and you think I'm this is cool. I'm finding, I'm finding my, my groove. I'm doing well at this. Um, I would say that then when actually one of the things that happened to me on interstellar and on projects around that time was that I started to get more of the imposter syndrome because I've started to feel like you'll get, you'll get news. You know, I got magazine articles saying, Eugenie von Tunzelman created the black hole. And it's like, no, I didn't. I, I managed a team of like 500 people that worked on it. You know what I mean? I, I mean, in, in varying capacities, but like, um, I, I, you know, you, I started to feel like really not so much. Like I, I look after the crew. I make sure that the crew are the right people are on the tasks and they know what the tasks are, but I don't know that I really like made it or can make any kind of claim to that. Um, and that actually made me feel a little bit, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a self-esteem thing. It was just a thing of like, I'm getting a lot of credit for work I didn't do. And I don't like that feeling. Um, I don't like that feeling for sort of taking credit for, for other people's contributions. So, um, at the same time as moving job, I also started working a lot more on personal projects. Um, and, and that to me was a lot to do with convincing myself that I do actually know how to do it you know it's like it's like look I can make pictures all by myself um but then uh I also think that my my self-esteem has improved since the job move as well because I guess it's using now that I'm doing a, a more technical sort of problem solving job um I guess it uses more of that skill or that sort of skill set 
Um, so I guess I feel a little bit more, you know, like I contributed, <laughs> if you know what I mean. No, absolutely. I, and I think, I think you touched on, on, on something very important. I think the, um, um, feeling fulfilled by your hobbies, if like um, mm. hobbies, maybe the wrong word, um, oh, personal okay. stuff, I think, because hobby sounds so, like, sounds so, um, not really involved, like, you know, like invested because yeah. there's a big difference between like, this is a hobby at the moment, you know, yeah. um, there's, but the effort is sometimes higher than, than sometimes my job, like compared, uh, like how many hours I put uh, into, into the stuff. Uh, it's, um, but in a way, this is a weird thing. It creates self general self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the personal work um, kind of balances out because I noticed when I was um, strongly involved in projects, um, basically when we met, I was kind of at the peak of my uh, self-esteem and also on the fall <laughs> afterwards. Oh, really? Like not because I was I was there. No, that, that has nothing to do. It was basically the, the time frame. Just if you're so focused on your work, it kind of helps you because you live for your work and i think everyone who's kind of successful in this industry has at least this moment maybe longer maybe shorter but where you like like so wrapped up in your work that you don't see anything anymore that you basically don't have a life you go home eat go back to work go home eat and you don't have like a personal project you don't really uh, of course you see maybe people but um it also like that's what i mean that's why i was a little bit about this question also because uh i felt that that for example when i mentioned about the the, the black hole stuff there is something that that you don't don't like about like being the the sole focus of this whole project um which was not my intent but um i, I noticed that that, that some that there's something like like uh, where we sometimes so wrapped up in our ourselves that we lose track of uh, what we like, and I think this kind of kind of personal project sometimes help us a little bit of balance, like create a little bit like a balance of um, where we we love our work, but the personal project we don't have like uh, money involved. Maybe there is no pressure, like only the like fragment pressure of whatever we have at work and stuff like that. And I think this always, I think we talked, we, we talked last time about that when, when one of the best projects we had were, uh, projects where, where there were basically no expectations. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's immensely liberating when, you know, I love making very, very high end work. I love doing that, but I also find it an extremely exciting contrast when you have people coming and going, you know, <laughs> we, we have no money, <laughs> whatever you do is great. Like, I mean, I, and also when you're, when you're working as your own client, when you're a, when you're doing a personal project that it's immensely liberating because, you know, it's it, everything you decide matters is all that matters. You know, <laughs> you're like, I want to work on this bit. I'm not particularly interested in this bit and it's completely up to you. And that, you know, it, it can also be, too liberating. I think that, you know, um, I guess it's kind of a, a, a point that people make a lot, but something that forces creativity is limitation when you have to work around problems. And so sometimes if the problem, I think one of the kind of trickiest parts about doing home projects is that you can make anything. It's completely up to you. Like, what are you going to do? Uh, if you don't have a client coming to you with a, with a brief, 
then, you know, you have to just like, what's my own brief going to be? Um, and that can be, uh, it can be sort of paralyzing. I think it can, it can be, um, which is why, you know, I, I, I'll go a while without doing anything, you know, without doing any sort of home CG projects, I'll go quite a long while. And then at some point something will massively inspire me and then I'll jump back into it, you know? Yeah, I think that's what people a lot of times underestimate me, including is um, like first thing I learned that too, like limitations are basically if if you if you sit there for this blinking Google like cursor and you like can Google everything, you literally don't know what to Google. But if you have something specifically or you're like in a specific environment, it's it's kind of liberating. Like a limitation, uh, I notice I create this, and sometimes lim limitations are just um, like you don't have anything else. You know, like you don't have the best computer, you don't have uh, Maya, so you need to use Blender. You don't have the best camera, and I notice like this limitations of, for example, you you just make something work. For example, doing a podcast without the proper equipment, the, pro yeah. the proper knowledge, um, without maybe What the proper... What do you mean? This is very professional. So professional. <laughs> without like the proper host skills, <laughs> like me repeating, like some, like when I, when I, rec when I record uh, like the intro and outro, I always record multiple times because like I, I sometimes don't speak English. <laughs> it's, it's really, really very strange. So, um... No, and I think this is like just important to understand that's um, that's like limitations are are the, are the bread and butter of of uh, creativity in a way. Since I, I basically mentioned creativity ink in, in basically every episode, creativity ink. Um, there is like a, an anecdote regarding your, your example in creativity ink about uh, CD covers in uh, Monsters Incorporation. I don't know if mm -hmm. you know, if you know that one. Um, I don't. And it was basically, um, they, um, I think it was Mike's apartment and they had like the stand with, uh, like all the CDs and there was like, of course, the, all the bands are monsters. Yeah. So they have to create like a cover band for every monster. And basically like in a way, half of Pixar or half of the, of the, of the project team kind of got into a rampage of creating the best cover. So they kind of invested, like, I think Weeks was, was on the book, um, into creating this cover until someone asked the questions, like, do we even see them? Like, do we, are there, like, and then they find, found out, like, oh, yeah, like, mm, they're very far in the background. Maybe we see one or two. Yeah, see um, the spines. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, and this is, like, basically where, where sometimes, um, I, I think, I think you're, you're right in this case. Like, some people need the, the person um, who, who kind of pushes you a little bit and, and gives you more the priority because you get so involved in into your own work and some people are all over the place yeah 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 <laughs> they they kind of um but again i think it, it helps it helps a lot of um to to understand how how other people work like how other people um tackle their challenges for example how did you tackle their challenge and um i i want to do like for for the for the closing part i have some some just random questions yeah, like, sure. I'm I'm curious. <laughs> um, so since I I basically all the questions I do here is basically because I want to. So I have no one's editing me. Yeah. Not not so far. See. So no limitations, no management. That's, and, and that's, that's what's going on. 
And that's what I love about doing the show. It's basically, I don't even try to, to be conform with like how podcasts should be. I just try to be, I'm just trying to be curious and just try to ask questions. It's a nice um, chat. It's a nice chat. Yeah. Yeah. So I I thought it, I try with the the question section in the end. So it's just like uh, small questions. You can take like a second or longer, as long as you want. Um, So like, since we talked about rides, so what's your favorite ride so far? I mean, probably you can recommend something. Uh, (laughs) It's it's really, you know, it's, um, I, it's, uh, there's probably about five that like vie for my top place, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give joint top place politically. The, 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 <laughs> to, okay, let's let's say the, the best three. Uh, no, I'm going to. This is my answer. Two. Yeah, I'm going to because I'm going okay. Haunted Mansion and Revenge of the Mummy. Uh, one Disney, one Universal. Where, where are they? Like, um, where's the... Haunted Mansion is in uh, quite a lot of the. Disney parks. Um, my favorite one is in Orlando, uh, mm-hmm. and Revenge of the Mummy is in a couple of Universal parks. But the superior one is also in Orlando. So Orlando is the place to go. I would it's the say the place to go. That I think that's 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 where you will will uh, live in the future. I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure. About I don't know. That. <laughs> I don't know. I'm out, there, I'm, I'm out there every few months now, and um, I feel like I probably spend enough time in, in Orlando. Because uh, that, that would be funny. Like you, you like spent like the the end of your life in. Orlando. Yeah, it's like maybe the, I'll, reti- the, maybe the I'll retire to Florida. Maybe. But since we're talking about living situation, like how do you li- uh, do you like to live in London? Yes. Um, yeah, I live in Hackney, and I love it. Um, I've lived in um, kind of central London, walkable for work for many, many years. And then I've, uh, last year moved out to Hackney and I'm very, very happy here. And hopefully I never have to move again. I'm always surprised by these answers. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I found London so stressful. Uh, the tube was definitely an experience. Yeah, but I don't uh, take the tube. I, 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 I commute on buses or on foot and I like it. Um, I think one, one important thing is, um, admiration and uh, do you have some, someone maybe fictional even, uh, you admire at the moment? Oh God. Um, I, uh, I, I, I never told it would be easy question. <laughs> no, you know, um, uh, not, not, not fictional, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with, um, Sir David Attenborough, um, as, uh, um, living legend i have to say i don't know who he is what okay uh, uh david attenborough <laughs> is a, a a veteran broadcaster on for the bbc who works on wildlife documentaries all of his documentaries are the best things that you will see he has been championing public understanding of nature for many years and is a lovely person as far as i can tell i don't actually know him but you know there you go i admire nice um i think that's someone you, you'd like to meet her huh? oh i would i would but then again i i um i do believe in the never meet your heroes thing uh, oh yeah because you think <laughs> like they're becoming the villains no i don't think it'd be a villain but like i always think that like you know you can always meet someone when they're in a slightly crap mood or something like that, and then it can break your heart forever. Don't expect people to live up to your expectations. Just admire them from afar. That's a quote. 
Um, what's the most annoying part since you, t you talked about traveling? Uh, what's the no most annoying part like of traveling, which people don't really know? Like, because if you, if you travel much more now, like what would you say, like people underestimate this point of traveling or because it's, it's always sounds great. You know, like if someone um, tells me I travel for work, I was like, wow, I want that. Yeah. Trip. No, I do really enjoy it. But, um, I guess the, I guess the tricky parts are like, I would say that when you're on a work trip, um, you very, very, very rarely get time to yourself because you'll be you know you're doing lots of traveling there's lots of jet lag you are starting early doing stuff all day generally sort of doing meals out with the team everything is like it's great but it means that like you you get back at midnight and you look at your phone and there's 300 new emails <laughs> and then that happens cumulatively <laughs> and i i find that quite stressful like um i'm not i'm not very good at uh keeping control on them when i'm out of the office so the email pile up I would say is the worst part that people don't know about. But the part that the worst part that people do know about is jet lag because yeah. that sucks. It was very, yeah, I had this thing where, where I did like um, Effects America. I did like a master course in there and I was, exp I, I maybe, I never had a jet lag before. So I, I, I like literally didn't know what to expect and, and how it works. So when I came to Montreal, um, I basically expected to have a jet lag, which I didn't. When I came back to France, oh yeah, yeah, it's hideous. This is this yeah. is when it kicks in, and I was like completely broken. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what are tun Tunzelbots? Um, whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> we 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 do our homework here. Yeah, apparently so. Um, all right. Uh, yes. So when it's actually at that same time when I was deciding to um, spend more time doing personal projects. Um, I read a book by um, Richard Dawkins about evolution um, and he had this little, uh, it's, the book's called The Blind Watchmaker. Richard Dawkins is uh, awesome when he's talking about evolution and I'm going to leave it there. Um, but um, uh, <laughs> No political meaning here. <laughs> nope. um, but, um, but yeah, so he he. Uh, back in 86, he wrote this piece of code to do some evolution um, of, of sort of tree diagrams, um, evolve them over time and have a look at how things change. And um, I was very inspired by this and decided to sort of uh, look at writing an updated version. So I wrote a piece of code that um, it starts with like a tree and the tree is it's only a tree in the sense of like L systems. It's a tree diagram. It's a, it's a tree that is formed of limbs and those limbs have joints and those joints move. And basically it kind of creates a sort of random one of these, drops it on the floor, allows it to sort of twitch away for a minute or so and calculates how far it's moved. And then that one has 20 children, which are like um, all slight variants of it. And then those ones are all, they will go do the same simulation and whoever travels the first, furthest gets to be the parent of the next generation and then that one who travels the furthest gets to parent the next generation and so on and so on until um uh such time as you stop the code running and the hope is that you've created something that's a bit like a kind of virtual robot that's taught itself to walk um and i wrote this code um and then wrote like a houdini importer to to bring in those simulations and visualize them um and render in mantra and I made a little short film it's like five minutes long 
of the results um, and it's on Vimeo, you should check it out, uh, Tunzelbots. Um, and the name came about because I used to sit next to a guy at work who called me Tunzelbot, Tunzeltron, Tunzeldroid 3000. I don't think it was particularly flattering. Genuinely, I think it's fair to say that out of everything I've ever done, that's the thing I'm proudest of is, is Tunzelbots. I think like it was, I, I absolutely started the project thinking there is no way I will ever get results out of this code. I will lose interest or it'll be too hard. Um, and then the fact that I edited it all together, I wrote the music, <laughs> my first foray into composing. Um, oh, um, really? But yeah, yeah. But like, I, I, um, I just wanted to be, it to be like my work. Um, and, um, and I'm just really proud of the fact that it, that it worked and it yielded results that people enjoyed and stuff. It's, it was great. Yeah, because I saw that. I remember there was some music, but I, I like. I think I saw it when. No, we everyone met. watches everything on silent these days, so it doesn't matter. And the music isn't very good. I will say that it's just the fact that, like, I was like, this is all going to be my work. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but again, uh, the the personal project that creates so much of pleasure and also like self esteem. Also, you know, like um where where you didn't expect and no one expected from you something you know and, yeah uh, it's a positive trait i think yeah i mean it, it it's it's nice to think that i that i you know when you finish it you kind of do think like pretty pleased with myself like it's a very yeah. nice little it's pretty it's pretty nice to 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 have that burst of like i actually finished it and i'm proud of it and it's good you know that that's a it's a tremendous yeah. feeling I love this feeling. I love this. I love to just like, uh, like I have videos uh, out there and like this podcast is one of them where I literally say, I like my own videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm pleased with how it turned out. Not that, not that there aren't things I wouldn't change, but, um, but I'm pleased with how it turned out. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, 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 the amount I put in and the success I have from that, like in terms of like when I watch it and I'm, of course I know, for example, the video quality is maybe not the best, uh, the audio quality has improved, but I, I'm pleased with like compared of how much time I spent in it and like even with all the mistakes I do, um, I'm very pleased with what, what happens. And that's, that's the, the point I kind of, for me at least, the uh, appreciation. I want to, to end with a whiskey-ish note. Since I heard you are a whiskey uh, fan, I, I I am yes. And um, see, like homework. Yeah. Um, and um, I like my. I had some whiskey bottles at my parents' home. They're now all empty. Mm. So I have that to happens. I don't know how it happens, but it happens. Mm. Uh, they're they're not even whiskey fans. Oh. You know, I, I I'm I'm not sure how it happened. It like like <laughs> ghostly influences. But I would I would like uh, would be cool if if you can recommend me one two three in a price segment of uh, mm. affordable. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. I can I can try. Um, so most of the whiskey distilleries do like a range. So they'll do a one that's relatively affordable and then they'll do, you know, the, the, they'll do their fancier ones and then they'll do oh, yeah. the really fancy ones that come in a nice box. Um, so I'll just recommend the distilleries um, oh, really? <laughs> I, 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 and then go for their cheapest one or their second cheapest, whatever suits you. Um, but I, uh, I really, I really like Ardbeg, um, 
which is a, an, a scotch and from from the the island of isla um Ardberg is super super smoky um it kind of tastes a bit like a bonfire um it's one of my favorites and then uh i'll say uh lefroig and talisker um they're all kind of i'm very much into the into the the smoky fiery flavors um so yeah there you go there's a there's some recommendations yeah i have to look them up because i i am not sure if i even heard of them before no uh, i mean they're, well, they're hard to spell as well so i'll have to email them through to you yeah <laughs> please do it and then i will pop them in while you while you explain them maybe i pop even a picture so people can um, yeah see them and this is also like the twist here <laughs> from from like vfx to uh, like Uh, multimedia rights to whiskey questions <laughs> we we did now everything today i think so and uh, <laughs> thank you very much for for taking your time and like giving us a little bit of of like a, a look of first one your career your challenges but also also a little bit like the shift and also the mind of why you did the shift and how you did the shift that, that things are not as um easy or like like set in stone as you think you are neither your career nor the decisions you you make and i think this is one of the of the reasons i wanted to talk to you um i mean i, I just called this uh this episode pursue your dreams hey. um and um i think one of the in a way i had this feeling when i was working with you um, huh. i i saw i saw this inspiration um I've, i mean of course it it was still like That's why, I, I, like, when when we worked together, I saw still like a lot of things had to fall in place at this moment. Mm. Um, but on the opposite side, I saw that you you were enjoying your work more than I'm used used to see. Yeah, um, that's good to hear. Uh, and so I I was kind of curious of like talking to you and and opening this this box and see um, what's inside and why you became so like motivated and uh, so passionate about things maybe you were before but i i felt that there's th this situation specifically now that that created uh created that and opened i think you're also your your personal projects i i see i see you doing uh stuff on twitter so here and there sometimes yeah uh, with your patterns and i I've, i i like that and i think um to be inspired and inspire other people is is one of the of the reasons for this podcast we talked about that what's exactly the reason for that and i think one of the reason is is exactly that and i'm happy to have you here and um everyone who's listening like hopefully enjoy eugenie and me i always like now i'm really scared of saying your name yeah eugenie yeah. eugenie you eugenie. see I, i i literally avoided it for the last one and a half hours to say your name yeah because i was like that's after what everybody does once time i was kind of like what was it what was yeah. it I, so i should wrote it down it's funny i don't i don't care at all if people mispronounce my name it's a really awkward name but uh but generally if people ask i'll be like well if you now that you've asked i'm going to correct you <laughs> yeah. eugenie that's right Okay, we have to overdub it in the introduction <laughs> now. <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much too. Thank you for listening. For more content, go on 21artistshow.com to find all the links to YouTube, Spotify, iTunes and Podbeat. If you love the show and like me to keep it going, subscribe on your favorite platform. You can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Alexander Richter. 
See you on the next episode. Bye.